Wondering how to make sure your favorite Bedtime Stories podcast can keep making new episodes? The answer is elementary, my dear listener. If you're enjoying the podcast and never miss an episode, we invite you to become a Spotify supporter through the link in the show notes. Your support helps us cover the costs of creating this podcast and ensures we can continue bringing you the best Sherlock Holmes bedtime experience, completely free. So, sleep easier by clicking the Support This Podcast link in the show notes and become a Spotify supporter today. Welcome to the Sherlock Holmes Bedtime Stories podcast. Each episode is a section from a classic, comforting Sherlock Holmes story with relaxing music to help you fall asleep. If you like the Sherlock Holmes Bedtime Stories podcast, please follow us on Spotify and YouTube. These are great zero-cost ways to support the podcast. Please leave a five-star rating for the Sherlock Holmes Bedtime Stories podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and press the like button on YouTube. If you have comments or suggestions for the Sherlock Holmes Bedtime Stories podcast, please leave a review with your thoughts. There are a few ways to do this. On Spotify, leave a comment in the episode's Q&A under the question, What did you think about this episode? On YouTube, leave a comment on an episode video. And on Apple Podcasts, write a review for the show. We do read every review and comment and want to make sure this podcast helps you get a good night's sleep. And finally, please follow Sherlock Holmes Bedtime Stories on Instagram. We post about upcoming episodes, fun facts from the world of Sherlock Holmes, and tips to help you get a good night's sleep. Again, it's Sherlock Holmes Bedtime Stories on Instagram. Thank you for joining us this evening. Now it's time to relax. Let your body fall into a comfortable position in your bed and drift gently into a state of total relaxation with tonight's story. The adventure of the engineer's thumb continued. Away we went then and we drove for at least an hour. Colonel Lysander Stark had said that it was only seven miles, but I should think from the rate that we seemed to go, and from the time that we took, that it must have been nearer twelve. He sat at my side in silence all the time, and I was aware more than once when I glanced in his direction that he was looking at me with great intensity. The country roads seemed to be not very good in that part of the world, for we lurched and jolted terribly. I tried to look out of the windows to see something of where we were, but they were made of frosted glass, and I could make out nothing save the occasional bright blur of a passing light. Now and then I hazarded some remark to break the monotony of the journey, but the colonel answered only in monosyllables, and the conversation soon flagged. At last, however, the bumping of the road was exchanged for the crisp smoothness of a gravel drive, and the carriage came to a stand. Colonel Lysander Stark sprang out and, as I followed after him, pulled me swiftly into a porch which gaped in front of us. We stepped, as it were, right out of the carriage and into the hall, so that I failed to catch the most fleeting glance of the front of the house. The instant that I had crossed the threshold, the door slammed heavily behind us, 
and I heard faintly the rattle of the wheels as the carriage drove away. It was pitch dark inside the house, and the colonel fumbled about looking for matches and muttering under his breath. Suddenly a door opened at the other end of the passage and a long golden bar of light shot out in our direction. It grew broader and a woman appeared with a lamp in her hand which she held above her head, pushing her face forward and peering at us. I could see that she was pretty, and from the gloss with which the light shone upon her dark dress I knew that it was a rich material. She spoke a few words in a foreign tongue in a tone as though asking a question, and when my companion answered in a gruff monosyllable, she gave such a start that the lamp nearly fell from her hand. Colonel Stark went up to her, whispered something in her ear, and then, pushing her back into the room from whence she had come, he walked towards me again with the lamp in his hand. Perhaps you will have the kindness to wait in this room for a few minutes, said he, throwing open another door. It was a quiet little plainly furnished room with a round table in the center, on which several German books were scattered. Colonel Stark laid down the lamp on the top of a harmonium beside the door. I shall not keep you waiting an instant, said he, and vanished into the darkness. I glanced at the books upon the table, and in spite of my ignorance of German, I could see that two of them were treatises on science, the others being volumes of poetry. Then I walked across to the window, hoping that I might catch some glimpse of the countryside, but an oak shutter, heavily barred, was folded across it. It was a wonderfully silent house. There was an old clock ticking loudly somewhere in the passage, but otherwise everything was deadly still. A vague feeling of uneasiness began to steal over me. Who were these German people, and what were they doing living in this strange, out-of-the-way place? And where was the place? I was ten miles or so from Aford, that was all I knew, but whether north, south, east or west I had no idea. For that matter, Reading and possibly other large towns were within that radius, so the place might not be so secluded after all. Yet it was quite certain from the absolute stillness that we were in the country. I paced up and down the room, humming a tune under my breath to keep up my spirits and feeling that I was thoroughly earning my fifty-guinea fee. Suddenly, without any preliminary sound in the midst of the utter stillness, the door of my room swung slowly open. The woman was standing in the aperture, the darkness of the hall behind her, the yellow light from my lamp beating upon her eager and beautiful face. I could see at a glance that she was sick with fear and the sight sent a chill to my own heart. She held up one shaking finger to warn me to be silent, and she shot a few whispered words of broken English at me, her eyes glancing back like those of a frightened horse into the gloom behind her. I would go, said she, trying hard as it seemed to me to speak calmly. I would go. I should not stay here. There is no good for you to do. But, madam, said I, I have not yet done what I came for. I cannot possibly leave until I have seen the machine. It is not worth your while to wait, she went on. You can pass through the door, no one hinders. And then, seeing that I smiled and shook my head, she suddenly threw aside her constraint and made a step forward with her hands wrung together. 
For the love of heaven, she whispered, get away from here before it is too late. But I am somewhat headstrong by nature and the more ready to engage in an affair when there is some obstacle in the way. I thought of my fifty guinea fee, of my wearisome journey, and of the unpleasant night which seemed to be before me. Was it all to go for nothing? Why should I slink away without having carried out my commission, and without the payment which was my due? This woman might, for all I knew, be a monomaniac. With a stout bearing, therefore, though her manner had shaken me more than I cared to confess, I still shook my head and declared my intention of remaining where I was. She was about to renew her entreaties when a door slammed overhead, and the sound of several footsteps was heard upon the stairs. She listened for an instant, threw up her hands with a despairing gesture, and vanished as suddenly and as noiselessly as she had come. The newcomers were Colonel Lysander Stark and a short, thick man with a chinchilla beard growing out of the creases of his double chin, who was introduced to me as Mr. Ferguson. This is my secretary and manager, said the Colonel. By the way, I was under the impression that I left this door shut just now. I fear that you have felt the draft. On the contrary, said I. I opened the door myself because I felt the room to be a little close. He shot one of his suspicious looks at me. Perhaps we had better proceed to business then, said he. Mr. Ferguson and I will take you up to see the machine. I'd better put my hat on, I suppose. Oh no, it is in the house. What, you dig Fuller's earth in the house? No, no. This is only where we compress it. But never mind that. All we wish you to do is to examine the machine and to let us know what is wrong with it. We went upstairs together, the colonel first with the lamp, the fat manager and I behind him. It was a labyrinth of an old house with corridors, passages, narrow winding staircases and little low doors, the thresholds of which were hollowed out by the generations who had crossed them. There were no carpets and no signs of any furniture above the ground floor, while the plaster was peeling off the walls and the damp was breaking through in green, unhealthy blotches. I tried to put on as unconcerned an air as possible, but I had not forgotten the warnings of the lady even though I disregarded them, and I kept a keen eye upon my two companions. Ferguson appeared to be a morose and silent man, but I could see from the little that he said that he was at least a fellow countryman. Colonel Lysander Stark stopped at last before a low door which he unlocked. Within was a small square room in which the three of us could hardly get at one time. Ferguson remained outside and the Colonel ushered me in. We are now, said he, actually within the hydraulic press and it would be a particularly unpleasant thing for us if anyone were to turn it on. The ceiling of this small chamber is really the end of the descending piston, and it comes down with the force of many tons upon this metal floor. There are small lateral columns of water outside which receive the force, and which transmit and multiply it in the manner which is familiar to you. The machine goes readily enough, 
but there is some stiffness in the working of it and it has lost a little of its force. Perhaps you will have the goodness to look it over and to show us how we can set it right. I took the lamp from him and I examined the machine very thoroughly. It was indeed a gigantic one and capable of exercising enormous pressure. When I passed outside, however, and pressed down the levers which controlled it, I knew at once by the wishing sound that there was a slight leakage which allowed a regurgitation of water through one of the side cylinders. An examination showed that one of the India rubber bands which was round the head of a driving rod had shrunk so as not quite to fill the socket along which it worked. This was clearly the cause of the loss of power and I pointed it out to my companions who followed my remarks very carefully and asked several practical questions as to how they should proceed to set it right. When I had made it clear to them, I returned to the main chamber of the machine and took a good look at it to satisfy my own curiosity. It was obvious at a glance that the story of the Fuller's Earth was the merest fabrication, for it would be absurd to suppose that so powerful an engine could be designed for so inadequate a purpose. The walls were of wood, but the floor consisted of a large iron trough, and when I came to examine it, I could see a crust of metallic deposit all over it. I had stooped and was scraping at this to see exactly what it was when I heard a muttered exclamation in German and saw the cadaverous face of the colonel looking down at me. What are you doing there? he asked. I felt angry at having been tricked by so elaborate a story as that which he had told me. I was admiring your fuller's earth, said I. I think that I should be better able to advise you as to your machine if I knew what the exact purpose was for which it was used. The instant that I uttered the words, I regretted the rashness of my speech. His face set hard, and a baleful light sprang up in his grey eyes. Very well, said he, you shall know all about the machine. He took a step backward, slammed the little door, and turned the key in the lock. I rushed towards it and pulled at the handle, but it was quite secure, and did not give in the least to my kicks and shoves. Hello, I yelled. Hello, Colonel, let me out. And then suddenly in the silence I heard a sound which sent my heart into my mouth. It was the clank of the levers and the swish of the leaking cylinder. He had set the engine at work. The lamp still stood upon the floor where I had placed it when examining the trough. By its light I saw that the black ceiling was coming down upon me. Slowly, jerkily, but as none knew better than myself, with a force which must within a minute grind me to a shapeless pulp. I threw myself screaming against the door and dragged with my nails at the lock. I implored the colonel to let me out, but the remorseless clanking of the levers drowned my cries. The ceiling was only a foot or two above my head, and with my hand upraised I could feel its hard, rough surface. Then it flashed through my mind that the pain of my death would depend very much upon the position in which I met it. If I lay on my face, the weight would come upon my spine, and I shuddered to think of that dreadful snap. Easier the other way, perhaps, and yet had I the nerve to lie and look up at that deadly black shadow wavering down upon me. Already I was unable to stand erect when my eye caught something which brought a gush of hope back to my heart. 
I have said that though the floor and ceiling were of iron, the walls were of wood. As I gave a last hurried glance around, I saw a thin line of yellow light between two of the boards, which broadened and broadened as a small panel was pushed backward. For an instant I could hardly believe that here was indeed a door which led away from death. The next instant I threw myself through and lay half fainting upon the other side. The panel had closed again behind me, but the crash of the lamp and a few moments afterwards the clang of the two slabs of metal told me how narrow had been my escape.